You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. It is Randy Bolander with the Third Cup of Coffee podcast, and I am so glad to be with you today. This is one of my favorite things that I do all week, especially now, especially with this uh, lockdown that we're under. I love podcasting, and I love podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and more so even now while we're all under lockdown. And I was thinking the other day, what's What's the appeal? I mean, we had radio for years, why? and we didn't listen. And why are we suddenly listening to podcasts? I think it has something to do with this lockdown that I'm listening to more podcasts because uh, podcasting is not Zoom. And at this point, we're all looking for something that is not Zoom. Here's the problem with Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. Initially, you're like, oh, look, I can see you and you can see me. And that's that's a wonderful thing. And after like the third week, it's like, I can see you and you can see me. And then you end up just going to leave up the black square because you're just you're just done with it. Uh, there is terminal velocity. This is when you go as fast as you can. There is a terminal growth rate. It's a financial term when things are. Uh, growing as fast as they can. I think I think we might have reached terminal Zoom. There are more Zoom meetings than people to Zoom them. And Instagram's not much better. There are more Instagram live sessions than there are for people to watch them. Or so I thought. You know, that was my working theory, that there's just market saturation. So the other day, I live streamed making a tuna fish sandwich. I mean, that was the entire content. And you know what? I had people watch. I had people interested who were asking questions. I even had hecklers. So maybe we have not reached the terminal amount of video that we can produce and watch. It just feels like it. Speaking of quality video, Sunday morning, Kelsey taught to a little group of friends on on Zoom. and uh, But it was fantastic. She taught this great message on the transition from Passover to Pentecost, which is really the season we're in right now. Pentecost is Sunday is May 31st, I believe. So we're in that transition between Passover and waiting on the Lord and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is really good. If you search for my name on YouTube, you will find her video. Why? Because I posted it. Uh, if you are interested in those kind of resources or what we are doing in the way of Zoom meetings and connecting and prayer meetings, email me at uh, rbolender at gmail.com. We'll stick you on the list. We send an email a week out just to kind of keep you posted on what's going on. And in the next one, I will include uh, another link to a message that she taught years ago in Alaska. I'm thinking nine years ago. It's so interesting. Somebody just sent it back to her and said, do you remember teaching this? It is eerie on how um, very, very up to date that it is. But today I'm not talking about Zoom. I'm talking about prayer and in particular prayer in regards to being human, not superhuman, not super spiritual, just a regular person. You know, when you talk to people about prayer, everybody wants a prayer life, but nobody wants to go get one. Like that seems hard. They just kind of want it to materialize. 
Friends, you're never going to magically wake up and have a prayer life. We've got to pursue it. And to understand what we're pursuing, we have to talk about prayer and its place in our being human. We live in a time there's really a unique call upon the church. And truthfully, it's probably always been upon the church. But we're finally at the point where we've quit doing everything else that got in the way. And we are thinking hard about our call to prayer. A calling has been issued for a church to be more than a gathering place or a place to learn. Mostly, that is the role that it has taken in our culture. It's a gathering place for community. That's good. And it's a place to come and learn. But it has not necessarily been a place to come and engage with conversations with God. Isaiah 56, 6-8 indicates that the Lord was looking for more than we've given him in recent years. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. He said, The blessing I'm giving them is they will have joy in prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Let me let me play high school guidance counselor for a minute, which frankly sounds like a very difficult job. But let me just pretend. What are you called to do? There's probably some nobility to it. Not what are you doing right now, or not even how are you making a living, but beyond that, what are you called to? Some callings are highly specific. I've met people who had jobs that were so specific that only three or four people in the nation were qualified to do those things. Other callings are more general. Some require choosing between activities, saying yes to this and no to this because of your calling. Some callings go to people and not to other people because of capability. Now, I have surrendered the idea that I may ever play in the NBA. It's not within my grasp, and to pursue that as a calling is a waste of time. Sincerity, hard work, and want to will never get me there. Usually a calling is something uniquely wired for us to do. And yet the most noble calling that is issued to all of us, regardless of capability, is the same. Prayer is the highest calling of a human being and yet it was within the grasp of everyone. It is the kindness of God to make the most important thing doable by the most broken people. He empowers the most broken person to reach that bar of that calling, and he's been doing it since the beginning of time. All he's wanted is for us to commune with him and him commune with us, for us to stay in that room, to feel the warmth from his heart, and say, this is what we were made to do. So if prayer is talking to God, it's interesting that a prayer meeting was one of the first recorded instances of human history. In Genesis 3, after the first instance of sin, God initiates a discussion. He fully knows what has happened and he knows what he's doing. He walks in the garden in the cool of the day and he sought out Adam and Eve so they could talk with him. This was a sort of a prayer meeting. Now, it might have been an awkward prayer meeting because Adam and Eve, like Ricky Ricardo, they had some splaining to do. 
I guess that was Lucy that had some splaining to do. But think of the wisdom of God who pushes past their behavior to force a conversation because they were made for conversation, not for sin. It was as if he said, we need to sort this out, this gulf between us. It can't continue. Adam and Eve, you are eternal beings, and your behavior of the last hour cannot dictate life forever. That's a premise for a powerful prayer meeting. Change has got to happen. Let's talk to God about it. Just like human history started with a prayer meeting, Israel started with a prayer meeting. It started between Moses and God. For some time, Moses had been the designated speaker to God, and it was in one of those conversations that Moses understood God's unique plan for Israel. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. You know, there really is no equivalent to the people of Israel. God wanted more than a man of faith. He wanted a people who would serve him wholeheartedly and be his. And so one of God's first assignments to this people, who he had called to himself, was to build a sanctuary for interaction with him. He initiates an offering from the people so that they can build him a house. Exodus 25, 8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And throughout history, those who were marked with a special relationship with God had an exceptional value for prayer. King David was a man after God's own heart. He melded worship and prayer into a model that was so sustainable, and then he funded it with his own money because from his unique insight into God's heart, he correctly understood the value in God talking with men and women and those men and women talking back to God. That value didn't come to him finally when he was in power. It resided in him since he had been a boy. Most of us, if we were honest, have abandoned the passions of our youth as we grow older, not because we're not interested, but because we're just too busy and it's not practical. We rarely take on greater commitments to God in time of pressure. So we need to be like David and make them when the load is light so that we learn, as the Bible says, to bear the yoke while we are young. David did this so much and so strongly that years later, as he brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he makes a pledge and he charts the course for generations. He says in Psalm 132, 3-5, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Now it cost David. It cost him specifically around his ideas of passion for prayer and the presence of God. Well-meaning people tried to convince him to be reasonable. It's easy to imagine his family of political advisors telling him, we need to direct funds this way, or family members like his wife saying, take it easy, David, you've got to save your strength for important things. Or even friends who felt it would be fine for David just to relax and chill out. Can you just watch the chiefs? There will never be a shortage of reasonable voices trying to talk you out of a deeper prayer life. Psalm 69, 8 and 9, David describes some of the pushback he got. 
He said, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien in my mother's, to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David was in this for the long haul. He was a man of prayer because he understood what it meant, and he wanted to have impact, not just renown. He didn't just want to be famous. He wanted to affect the future. Most of what we try and accomplish is for the purposes of renown. We want a bigger influence. We want a bigger audience. We want more followers. Visibility. Impact is different. You can be on the cover of every magazine in the rack and be forgotten in six months. Impact lasts and changes other people's lives for generations. David sensed this, and even though his fame and his fortune positioned himself for renown, he sought impact for the long haul through prayer, and he achieved it. Acts 13.36 refers to him and says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption or death. Wouldn't it be great if it were written of us that we served the purposes of God in our generation? We moved the kingdom forward in our generation. How did he serve the purpose of God in his own generation? He led the example in prayer. Then he commanded the kings of Israel and the generations after him to maintain worship in the house of the Lord in the way that the Lord had revealed to him. It was impractical, it was time-consuming, and from a purely bean-counter perspective, it didn't make any sense except that it worked. And every time in the history of Israel that the Davidic order of worship was reestablished in Israel, spiritual breakthrough and military victory soon followed. It worked because that's how they were meant to operate as a people who knew how to have a conversation with God. David walked with the Lord and spent significant times in prayer. And it charted the course for a nation. It's interesting that even Jesus had a prayer life. It's one of the most puzzling things because he was in himself God. Now, skeptics will say Jesus never claimed to be God except that he did. John 14, he said that to see him was to see the Father. Even the one who was God in the flesh disciplined himself to go and spend time in prayer, and he did it in a lot of different ways. He often prayed alone, withdrawing to solitary places early in the morning. He often prayed for those that he led. John 17, 11 says, And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. If you want to be a leader, pray for those who you are leading. Jesus, the perfect leader, prayed for those who were following him. He prayed in praise. Luke 10, 21, in the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your gracious will. So he prayed for those he led, he prayed in praise, and he prayed in anguish in the garden. History starts with a prayer meeting. God's relationship with his people starts in a prayer meeting. David, a man after God's own heart, built a system of lasting prayer meetings. Jesus, who was God himself, took time for prayer meetings, and when he returned to his father, did so as an intercessor. Finally, the church itself was founded in a prayer meeting. 
You know, there are a hundred different ways to plant a church, unless you trust the experts. The experts will tell you there's only a couple ways, and they involve mailing lists and uh, PR programs or miracles. You have to have at least two of those three. But the church was founded in a prayer meeting. Transition is always awkward because you really don't know what is coming, but you see change coming, and it's kind of forced on you. And that's where they were in the awkward days between Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The disciples and Jesus' followers might have been excused for losing focus. But in Acts 1.14, it says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Here they were in what they had known at that point to be the most pressured time of their lives. It was almost as if a pandemic had broken out and they couldn't leave their homes. And in that setting, they devoted themselves to prayer. The early church never got away from its prayer roots. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They list prayer right alongside eating to indicate that they were both a part of the regular rhythm of life. Sometimes people feel like they're too busy to pray. But the early church, the busier they got and the more stressed they got, the more they pushed into prayer. The apostles were moved to prioritize systemic prayer as leaders. Acts 6.4, talking about the leaders, said, We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer is woven through the lives of the heroes of our faith from the highest rank of Jesus to church leaders to the rebellious Jonah in the belly of the whale. In good times, in bad times, in clarity, in confusion, historically it is what the people of God do. Next to faith in Jesus, prayer is who we are and how we relate to the God that we say that we serve. And the role of prayer continues beyond what we think of as the end of human history. Human history crescendos into a prayer meeting. Psalm 102, 18 to 22 says, Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord, that he looked down from his holy height from heaven, and the Lord looked down at earth to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord and in Jerusalem his praise when peoples gather and kingdoms to worship the Lord. You know, God is a story writer. Not just a storyteller, but he's a story writer. And in stories, context is everything. The background, the things that are going on that you might not notice unless you looked for them and then you can't look away. For instance, If you see me with a fly fishing rig and a hat and hip waders, you figure out from context what my next move is going to be. I'm not going to Dave and Buster's, okay? I'm going fishing. That is the context in which I present myself. Prayer is the context for God's walk with man. So if prayer was the start of history, It marked the key points of history. It was the focus of King David's life. It was a staple of Jesus' life. It was instrumental in the early church. And it marks the end of the age with an exclamation point that maybe, just maybe, we are in a season 
where prayer is supposed to have a vital point in our lives. Let me give you just a couple of real quick ways here that you can make it a part of your life. First of all, make it a priority that makes that, that gets its own time. When I say a lot, we say lots of things are priorities, but we actually only give time to specific things because we only have so much time. So you can say your Aunt Mildred is a priority, but you haven't talked to her in nine months. You might love her. You might like her. You might hope she sends a Christmas gift, but she's not a priority. You haven't talked to her. That which we prioritize gets time. And if you don't set time aside to pray, you're not prioritizing it. Let's just be honest. Set time aside for it. Second of all, connect with like-minded people who pray. I know you're thinking, Randy, we're, we're in lockdown and you're telling us to connect with people. How are we supposed to do that? It is easier right now to connect with like-minded people than it has ever been in all of human history. Find people online who are further down the road in the direction you want to go and read everything they have written and watch everything that they post. I'm thinking people like Corey Russell from the Upper Room in Denver, Billy Humphrey at the House of Prayer in Atlanta. These are guys who have lived and breathed this idea of prayer, not just prayer, but enjoyable prayer. Corey is infectious. He does a lot of posting on social media. Track with him. Get with like-minded people. Then practice it. You're like, well, I'm not very good at praying. You do a ton of things you used to be lousy at. But you practice. You work on it. You develop that muscle. It gets stronger. It gets easier. It gets more natural. And then this is the final point. Teach it. Talk to others about it. Call them higher. Tell them what you're learning. You never master anything that you don't teach. We never really master prayer anyway, but we don't even get better at it if we're not conveying it to other people. If you are at a four on a zero to ten prayer scale, find somebody at a two and encourage them to be people of prayer. In doing so, you will find that your own prayer life comes more and more alive. I am so certain that what God is doing in the church in this season, when everything is shut down, is that he is calling us to be people of prayer like we always said we were. But if we were honest, we didn't. Don't miss this unique window. You're alive right now. You're alive right now and everything is shut down so that you can learn to pray. Don't miss the lesson. Have a great day. God bless.